Welcome to the Financial Planners South Africa podcast, a show dedicated to driving the positive evolution of financial advice, specifically in South Africa. To join a global community of financial advisors, sharing and learning with one another to drive the positive evolution of financial advice, head to xyadvisor.com. Portfolio Metrics is thrilled to bring you this podcast in support of our common passion, people and the evolution of wealth management. Our global business links precision investment management to expert financial advice through partnerships and technology. Portfolio Metrics is an authorized financial services provider. AssetMap is a proud sponsor of this podcast. Are you looking for the next big thing in advisor technology? AssetMap is used by thousands of financial advisors to help create more meaningful conversations with clients. See for yourself how AssetMap is leading the next phase of financial advice delivery. Learn more at asset-map.com forward slash Louis for special listeners discount. This episode is proudly brought to you by Alan Gray. They say it's important to live for today. Although that might be true, we can't forget to plan for tomorrow. There's a lot of it left, after all. Alan Gray is an authorized financial services provider. Visit www.alangray.co.za to learn how we build long-term wealth for clients. Welcome to another episode of Financial Planners South Africa. Today, I have in the studio with me Liam Dawson. Liam is an investment analyst at Portfolio Metrics. I'm really excited to have him here today as Portfolio Metrics has also been one of the key sponsors. And there's a lot of changes in the South African uh, investment environment. And we look forward to unpacking that today. Liam, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks, Louis. I appreciate it. There's, there's a lot going on. You know, we have a war um, that we're trying to navigate around. We have investment portfolios, um, a lot of them losing quite a bit of value. We have the RAND strengthening. But I, I want us to talk a little bit about items that probably doesn't change that much. You know, and, and one part that often comes to mind is this kind of home bias. You know, we've seen this change that investors in South Africa can increase their offshore exposure in retirement vehicles. And so I'm curious, as as an investment house, how do you approach home bias and determining what is the optimal offshore exposure? It's often something that advisors or even clients struggle with. So I'm curious to hear what your views are and how that's worked out. Yeah, look, I mean, there, there are lots of ways to handle handle that. Um, I guess you could try and tailor to each individual and identify what they already have offshore and then try and put that together as what you can move back or what you need to move offshore as well. Um, but I mean, sort of more from an asset allocation perspective, I suppose, is, I guess that's what your question is. Um, to look at it from that perspective, uh, what we've seen within a Reg 28 or Regulation 28 environment is that that's constraining enough. So it's not a case of you needing to force SA equities in there or impose a a home bias in the portfolio. So just from an asset allocation perspective, you don't need to force it, but then you need to be a little bit more discretionary or considerate to that uh, when you're building a discretionary portfolio or an unconstrained portfolio because you don't have this regulatory environment which is forcing South African assets into the portfolio or squeezing global assets out. Um, and there you need to have some consideration. And I suppose there are a lot of different ways to, to think about it. 
when you are unconstrained, so we could perhaps look at it that way and then come back to a more constrained environment. Um, when you're unconstrained, it's, it's, it's a little bit easier in the sense that you're doing trade-offs on asset classes. Um, I mean, what, what would you rather own in your portfolio? Would you rather own NASPIS or NASDAQ? And sort of valuations aside, it's, it's a case of would you rather have that 10% of your portfolio spread across five global leaders or one single company. I'm not saying Nuspis is a bad business at all. I'm just saying on that kind of concentration risk, taking money offshore helps you a lot. And I think that's what I suppose a lot of investors look at or advisors advise in line with is that South Africa carries a fair amount of risk with its regulatory risk or very concentrated small market versus the rest of the world. And taking money offshore really helps with that. Um, but you can't do it blindly and just say, well, I'm going to have all my money offshore uh, because you're going to, one, sort of mismatch your assets and liabilities if that's your objective. Um, but secondly, South Africa has some very attractive asset classes. Um, and, and coming back to part of your question a moment ago about the relaxation on these constraints um, in Reg 28 products or retirement products, the thing about that is that it's been relaxed. You cannot take more money offshore, but suddenly South African bonds are looking extremely attractive very distant from the war in Ukraine, or at least on the face of it, um, benefiting from uh, the, the macro sort of uh, tailwinds that, that are driving the, our, our economy. I mean, what we're exposed to. And then, I mean, uh, <laughs> with, without getting too technical, just things like interest rate differential. So interest or, or, or rather inflation in the U.S. in developed markets being quite a bit higher than South Africa is, is almost an anomaly. It shouldn't, shouldn't be that way. But it makes us stand out for global investors, um, and you—that—that's those types of re-ratings are where you can make a lot of money as an investor. Um, they aren't necessarily predictable, but maintaining a diversified exposure means that you actually catch some of that. Um, so it is—it's an interesting space. You suddenly can take more money offshore, but the question is, do you really want to right now? It's not the easiest one. <laughs> yeah, I hear you, Liam, and it, it's valuable to think of it as something completely unconstrained. And then moving backwards to say, okay, well, if we overlay this kind of 45% uh, limit now, where should we sit relative to something being unconstrained? And it might also not be the right time. We see a lot of drive from financial journalists and publications, you know, jumping on the bandwagon. Um, there's quite a, well, there's one in particular that often punts, you know, move all your assets overseas. What is the downside of, of an, uh, an all or nothing approach? Look, I know if you take all your money offshore, it's not exactly concentrated, but it is a single, not a single bet, but it's a concentrated decision in the sense that you're betting against the RAND, okay? Um, and, and I guess my concern with that is that if you take these concentrated positions, they can either make you a lot of money or perhaps lose you a lot of money. In dollar terms, you may be sort of pegged in or become wealthier, but the challenge is in RAND terms, which is where a lot of people's um, sort of retirement is going to be spent in South Africa. The real question is like, are you actually covering that base? Um, and, and not being a financial advisor myself, but being an investor for retirement, it's something that I'm, I'm aware of. I mean, you need to consider, yes, maybe there's a small probability that you'd end up overseas or you'd want to have a few holidays overseas because maybe your kids have moved there or, or something like that. Um, but the base case for my retirement is that I'm going to be in South Africa. 
And if that's the case, I need to make sure that my assets are going to grow and provide for me in that type of environment. And if I take all my money offshore, I'm, I'm running a risk that, that they won't, that the RAND could get significantly stronger. And I mean, it's, it's not, it's not such a crazy idea. I know that we have this recency bias in South Africa, but, um, we, it's been tough. I mean, I can probably just put it that way. It's been very, very tough from all sorts of perspectives. But when things are bad and the trajectory is upwards and it's improving, it doesn't matter that it's very bad going to bad. That improvement is what gets recognized in the markets. And I think that why I say it's not an outside idea that South Africa could actually be in a good spot or South African asset classes could be in a good spot is because if you see that type of improvement, you're coming from a very bad environment into, into a not so bad environment and, and market participants like that. Um, just to maybe come back to one little thing that you mentioned, South African home bias. I think South Africans love to take the money offshore. Um, personally, I know it's given me a slight behavioral hedge to have just a little bit of money offshore, but that's because I've got a career in South African capital markets. Uh, I've got my savings in South African capital markets. You need to diversify a little bit, I suppose. And for me, it is. It's a behavioral hedge. If I take that out, then I know I can very happily put money into my retirement annuity because should should sort of everything fall down, I know that I have something at least. So I think a lot of people take that kind of approach and say, where say the US, you'd have a very strong home bias. I think like something like 60 or 70% of their portfolio would focus on the US. Uh, or maybe even more. I mean, it, it depends on what sources you're looking at. But uh, then, of course, the UK, we know in our optimizations and, and portfolios that we build, we, we build in a UK home bias. Uh, in South Africa, it's almost the opposite. Everyone desperately wants to get money out of South Africa um, and don't want it to be in South Africa. So it's in like a the anti or ex sort of home bias in South Africa. You can understand. I mean, we've got a bit of a rocky path but or, or history, but I think we are in a better spot uh, and, and that you don't necessarily need to have that recency bias. You don't need to look at the last 10 years and say, well, the JC Allshare wasn't the best Um equity market in the world because if you look at the years before that it, it really was and, and for some good reason and a lot of those reasons aren't necessarily just gone in this sort of newer world that we're living in yeah and the biggest scheme of things 10 years is a blip you know we're not investing yeah. for a couple of months or even a single decade you know these are lifetime investments and you raise a very important point for financial planners for analysts saying if you're deriving your income predominantly linked in capital markets in South Africa, how do you diversify your portfolio? You know, do you do you move all of your assets in cash? Do you buy um, digital assets? Do you buy gold? Like, how do you approach diversification of that risk around your income stream, but also your savings and your capital that you want to deploy for investments? So, I mean, there's a lot of discussion around traditional versus alternative asset classes. Um, and I think especially because traditional... Uh, that being just sort of your stocks and bonds, whether it's local or global. But the reason I think for it is because valuations are so high. Everyone's concerned that if I'm exposed to these traditional asset classes, um, when they turn, because it's almost certain that they're going to turn, I'm going to follow the market down and it's going to be a painful ride. And perhaps it's something we can discuss in a moment, but around sort of volatility and things like that. But um, there, there was a nice uh, piece that came out from from Howard Marks not so, not so long ago, um, or at least I listened to it not so long ago. Um, and 
basically what he says there is that when you decide to time a market, and I mean this a traditional market, traditional uh, portfolio sense, um, when you try to time a market, you make a decision about when to sell, which is never really that obvious. Um, you make a decision again about when to buy in, which is supposed to be when it's sort of darkest, uh, darkest before dawn kind of situation. And then what you're going to buy then as well, because in theory, everything's changed. And if we go back to March 2020, uh, the corona crash, that happened. I mean, yes, one or two asset classes behaved as you'd expect, but there were a fair number of asset classes that didn't. Um, they, they really didn't behave and they didn't recover in the way that you'd expect either. I mean, leading into that, you say U.S., equities are sitting at extreme valuations. Is this finally the thing that's going to uh, roll them over and let's see, let, let other parts of the market um, do quite well? Um, so, I mean, markets are not predictable. I think that's the one thing that you can rely on. They're not predictable. Uh, to diversify, so coming back to your question, diversify um, your asset exposure, your, your portfolio, you, you just need to, I suppose, make sure that it is diversified both locally and globally. Um, something that's not carried through in those types of discussions is just how powerful that RAND, uh, the South African RAND, that translation actually is and how lucky we are in South Africa in two respects. So we, we've got a global business. We, we manage portfolios on a global basis. Uh, and, and in the UK or other developed markets, you're struggling with cash rates well, well, well below inflation. And so just keeping up in, with inflation is very difficult in the low-risk portfolios. Now, you're providing certainty, but the certainty is that you're probably going to underperform inflation for a short period of time. In South Africa, we've got wonderful short-term rates. Even though they've been as low as they have been and almost historically, we've got very, very good short-term rates. So again, South African asset classes versus a RAND liability are extremely powerful. And you have this wonderful diversifier that when markets sell off, the, the RAND dollar also weakens. And so these asset classes translate into a greater proportion of your portfolio. Um, so you might have, um, you might have, say, global bonds um, falling off a little bit, or equities falling down thirty percent in dollar terms, but they're probably only down about ten percent in rand terms at the time. Uh, so, so you you need to look at the tools available in portfolio metrics. We often talk about looking at looking at asset classes through a currency lens, because. Asset classes look different depending on what currency you're pricing them in, and they behave differently. Exactly the same asset class, just different currencies that you're looking at them through. And I think as a South African investor, we're very, very fortunate to have the RAND as volatile as it is for other reasons. It's sometimes not, not a privilege, but we're, we're very lucky to have that inside multi-asset portfolios because it gives you great diversification. You really should use both sides of it, not just all dollar, all RAND. Liam, with that as a background, I'm wondering if most retired investors aren't then invested too aggressively. You know, we're saying that the conservative assets do reward you with a real income stream, yet oftentimes we try and push clients to take kind of almost the maximum required equity exposure to get that growth. Do we need to revisit that and say, okay, Mr. Client, like maybe it's not just about having as much growth assets as possible. It's about securing your income stream using reliable, uh, low volatility assets. So for me, there are two things that are probably worth discussing here. And, and obviously the one is your term of investment, which is obviously very difficult to predict you. It's one hard to have a discussion about how long do you think you're going to live? Um, and, and secondly, it's also very difficult to predict how long somebody is going to live. 
So I guess you need to work with estimates on that and you can look at all sorts of tables from actuaries and things and say, okay, well, this is the time period that we're going to um, plan for your for your retirement savings to to support you. What's difficult with that, I think, uh, not, not in setting the timeline or investment horizon, but it's almost people draw a line in the sand and say, okay, I'm going to retire in 2025. At that point, I need to be 100% stable cash-like assets. It's almost like you're looking at this point, 2025, but you're not looking at the next 40 years after that. And if you have a 40-year investment horizon, should you not have more risk assets in there or more equities? Um, And so obviously it's dependent on each individual situation and the ability or or appetite for risk. Um, Because of course, you don't want to put someone in the wrong portfolio or higher risk portfolio than they should be in. Um, But at the end of the day, you need to plan for quite a long retirement. I mean, people are living longer and longer, even in South Africa as an emerging market with, with a uh, short to expect a, or life expectancy. Um, it, you, you do need to plan for that. Um, and, and so it sort of melts into that second point that I was trying to, trying to raise about this. I think it's often referred to as like the, the flight path or, or whatever it is. And as you near retirement, you should start shifting your asset allocation. And I do think it's true to a certain extent particularly if you're going to convert your your investment into sort of like a, a sort of locked-in type of annuity type, type product. But, I mean, that's all part of the financial advice process. I think if you're going to remain, basically carry market risk as an individual through retirement, you shouldn't be going for that certainty of, of income or, or fixed income in your portfolio. I think you miss out on a lot of potential. And fixed income has the potential to sell off as well. I mean, if you look at global global bonds over the last last couple of months, they've certainly felt a bit of pain. So it, it does happen. And then again, if you look at that example I gave about developed markets, you can take on the fixed income or the lower risk portfolio with more certainty around it. But sometimes that certainty is that you're going to underperform inflation for a certain period of time. Thanks, Liam. I think that makes a lot of sense. You know, like you're saying, the role of the advisor is balancing the short-term view and the longer-term view to say, let's let's not lose sight of what we want to achieve over 35 or 40 years or the rest of your investment lifetime by looking at short-term you know, rates because you can still miss out on equity-like returns. For investors, oftentimes doing nothing doesn't feel like an option. You know, I think as humans, we have a bias to wanting to do something. How do you tackle that within managing portfolios where a lot of times the best thing is to do nothing? So I'm curious, how do you how do you tackle that? And what type of information do you then look at to back up your decision to either do nothing or to take action? So I'm glad you put it in the context of a portfolio because I was going to try and squeeze the discussion into that context um, because it, it, it's a prime example. I mean, look, may, maybe an an advised client and you, you're managing your own portfolio um, or perhaps you, your, your full-time job is to manage a portfolio. Every, uh, let's, let's put it this way, it's not, not exactly this way, but every day you have a chance to go and make a change to a portfolio. You could sell everything, turn it to cash or obviously within a certain mandate, but in theory you could make decisions on that portfolio every day or intraday if you wish. Um, and I guess making that decision is a case of you, you need to almost drop like um, any like anchor that you have as to why you made that decision or why the portfolio looks like it does today. And you need to say forward looking, what are the prospects and, and almost assess probabilities and payoffs of 
different trades that you could make. Um, so it's looking at your positioning and saying that, okay, fine, I'm overweight, um, interest rate risk in this portfolio. And what does that look like in an uncertain world going forward? Because it is all uncertain. I mean, that's why you're getting paid a risk premium. Um, it's why asset classes reward you. The more uncertain they are, okay, so it's not a linear relationship, but in general, the more uncertain an asset class is, um, the greater the demand from an investor to invest in it, and typically the greater return that you receive from that asset class, but over time, of course. And so you need to sit and make that decision about how are you positioned at the moment? Uh, what's your neutral? Do you have like your own benchmark that you've constructed or do you measure yourself against peers or do you measure yourself against uh, a specific index? So taking that portfolio as an example, let's imagine we're managing a fixed income portfolio uh, and your overweight interest rate risk. You need to try and think about how these different points on the yield curve are going to behave. So different bonds that have been issued by the government, how they're going to behave with uh, the Reserve Bank increasing rates like we've seen recently or dropping rates like we've seen recently as well, not, not so long ago. Uh, and it's just about this forward looking, uh, having a sense of like different paths that the portfolio would take depending on what actually happens and reassessing those over and over and, and operating in a world of uncertainty. I think. I think that's probably been one of the biggest areas of growth for, for me in the industry. It's been a case of operating this world of uncertainty, making decisions in, in this uncertain world, because it is, it's why you get rewarded for investing. Um, and it, it certainly makes life a lot more comfortable or happier if you start to understand how to make decisions in an uncertain world. Yeah, and, and being painfully aware of your own behavioral biases. So coming back to your question about doing nothing and it really is one of the hardest things because I think sometimes you feel like, well, if you're managing a portfolio, I need to feel like I'm doing something. Or how would I, how, how will I explain this to the client? I met them a month ago. I'm meeting them again now, and I've done nothing on the portfolio. But it again comes back to your philosophy, your guiding style, your process, and saying, am I managing this portfolio within that? Because that's what a client or an investor should be buying into. Not your returns over the last year. It should be your process. And if that resonates with them, then they shouldn't be unhappy that you've done nothing. So long as it's, so long as it goes with your investment philosophy, I think that's probably the the main thing. But it is, it's it's very difficult to do, not, do nothing. Just as uh, as an investor, so I'll give you a second now. But just as an investor, you invest in your retirement money. You're very concerned about it. Uh, it's performing quite well, but it hasn't done as well as somebody else's portfolio. You don't consider why they've done there. Maybe they had some Bitcoin or ARK or something else in there that really drove returns or a single bet. Um, meanwhile, you've probably taken the, the, the on a probability basis, the best path, but you feel like you've underperformed. Do I make a change? And it's just that uncertainty, I guess. You need to come back and say, what am I trying to achieve? Uh, why am I doing this? Uh, what's the probability of success with my current path, uh, with the alternative paths if I make changes and things like that? I like how you phrase that reflection on your decisions relative to someone else, saying that you don't you don't see the risk that that person has taken on. You're only seeing one slither, um, and also the piece that they sh they want to share with you, right? So, how do you look at past decisions? You know, do you, as in portfolio metrics as a team, do you spend quite a bit of time looking at what went well or what went wrong, or where does reflection on past decisions fit into your process? I was actually up quite late last night doing exactly that. <laughs> and it's not like it was keeping me up at night. It was just sort of I was enjoying the work. I was getting through it. I was 
putting together some slides so I could actually discuss it with the team. But it's 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 a critical part, at least for me personally, it's a critical part of, of what we do um, because there's so much information that you can mine out of that. Um, if you want to improve a process, you need to reflect on it and you need to try and identify where you made good decisions, where you made bad decisions. Um, and it's not about good outcomes or bad outcomes. It's it's the correct decision versus the wrong decision with the information you had at the time. And reflect on it and say, like, is there something that we need to change fundamentally or is our process good enough to guide us through the next round of uncertainty? And, and I think that it's very, very important. I mean, from, from the work that we do here at Portfolio Metrics, we can go and do, it's all in numbers. Okay, so that was one of the big appeals sort of appealing factors of the industry for me when when I moved into the industry. It's just like the world is quantified. Just, there's actually too many numbers and, and you do yourself a, a big favor by understanding which numbers to really look at, um, understand when uh, a statistic or a distribution or uh, just when a set of data is skewed, it's not reflective of the full picture. So you, you do well to do that. But coming back to the idea of when you make good decisions versus bad decisions, um, you have to reflect on it. You, you absolutely have to. And you, you need to do it um, do it as a team because there are a lot of, I mean, if I've got a certain uh, reference in how I make decisions or, or way of making decisions, there's a chance that I'm going to continue that blind spot even when I reflect on decisions. And so you're not going to fully or critically evaluate sort of the, the full decision that you've made. So doing it as a team, you see it from different angles. It talks the idea of diversity uh, in thought in, in an investment team, which I think is critical. Uh, and yeah, uh, it's, it's just, it's actually part of the process that I enjoy the most because it almost sets a firmer foundation each time you're making your next decision. You're building this, this knowledge over time. You, you're understanding where you've gone wrong in the past, why you went wrong and how to guard against it. Uh, and also sometimes it's about taking on a little bit more risk than you have in the past. Um, Again, if I reflect on my own life, like I was quite conservative. I mean, if I saw a new sport or a new activity or something, my, my approach to it was to actually watch it, see it, see how it sort of played out. And then when I felt confident enough, get involved. Um, I'm a little bit different now. Um, sort of I've, I've sort of dialed that risk appetite up just a little bit more. And um, yeah, it's, it's, it's how it is. But reflection is, is critical, self-reflection. But then also within a team, I think it's very, very important. It makes so much sense having a framework, you know, a framework for investors, a framework for fund managers, a framework for analysts to say we've got something to hold on. And you mentioned there that sometimes we spend a lot of time looking at numbers that are irrelevant. What are the types of statistics that you think are, might be sidetracking investors, things that they fixate on, even though it has very little to do with future expected returns or even decision making? Um, well, it has to be performance. I mean, you see it across the industry. You, you, so, so performance is very important, but understanding what drove that, that performance is, is far more important. Um, so looking at these industry reports, and they are useful to a certain extent, but they're also a little misleading. Looking at performance over time, um, I mean, I, I know was it was probably about two months ago, I was watching a fund manager presentation. And, and the fund manager, who's good and well-established in the industry, stood up and showed the great inflation-beating returns in a low-risk portfolio over sort of like one year, three years, five years, seven years. Um, and it looked good. And, and sort of to an untrained eye, you'd look at it and say, wow, okay, this, this portfolio performs and it performs consistently. 
But if you looked a little harder, you would have seen that the one-year return was like 20% versus inflation of like 5% or 4%. And so you had this performance that wasn't across the seven-year period. It happened all sort of in one year. Um, And that, in fact, that fund had underperformed inflation uh, for probably about six years before that. So the performance is very, very misleading. It's, It's a good guide to interrogate and dig in a little deeper. It's also very useful to contrast against other things. So if a fund does particularly well uh, over the last month, and you also know that resources did particularly well over the last month, you could probably say that that was resources that drove the performance. And if that manager is consistent in in how they allocate and and sort of almost, if you wish, a style that they manage their fund in, um, then you know what you're buying and you know when it will perform and when it will underperform. And then you can decide is that's, the type, is that the type of return profile that you personally want or the type of return profile that you want to plug into sort of a greater or bigger system or portfolio because you have complementary managers in there. Um, it's, it's, yeah, back to your question, performance, I think definitely it's, it's so easy to say, look how good I've been and you actually did it all in one month and that's not the fund manager I personally want. I want a nice, consistent, smooth return profile, someone who manages risk um, very tightly but emphasizes things that they can control. So not big macro events. I don't want to see a portfolio do exceptionally well because Russia quickly invaded Ukraine. Uh, I'd like to know how the manager could predict that was going to happen and position themselves explicitly for that. If all of those pieces can be put together, then then perhaps it's a strategy to invest in. But when you're trying to forecast this macro environment, it's, it's just so difficult. You want to emphasize the parts of the process you do well. So fund manager... You want to see them picking the best companies, uh, emphasizing that idiosyncratic risk specific to the company and trying to manage their, their macro factor risk and quite tightly to their reference point. So these high returns or extremely low returns might be a symptom of what went wrong, you know, either taking on too much risk or concentrating in one area. And I like how you bring that back to your framework to say, where, where does this fit in? I'm curious, you know, and this might be a little bit controversial, but a lot of fund managers package their marketing around always being in the top quartile. And I think we have to identify that some of it is just marketing to attract assets. As an investment analyst that does due diligence on other fund managers, how do you kick the tires? You know, can, can individual financial planners even do that? You know, I understand that there's a very big place for discretionary fund managers for a specific reason. But where do you start when you when you kick the tires to say, hey, this is a fund manager that I might include or that I'm actively going to exclude from my portfolios? Um, so just before I climb into that, the, the fun thing that I sort of have a laugh about in the industry is, you know, funds done particularly well when you have from someone in a distribution team who's not contacted you for two or three years um, because they're suddenly knocking on your door or sending you an email because... The fund has these performance numbers and say, take a look at how we performed versus peers and all of that. And over the one month and seven day, <laughs> day period. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And they need to make that sale quickly. Look, I mean, everyone has a role yeah. in the industry and, yeah. and you need to question what is the role. So um, someone in business distribution, typically their role is sales. Now you need to ask what kind of sales philosophy you have. Are you looking to partner with somebody? Or are you looking to make a quick sale? You don't mind if the money's only there for a short while or is it really just like asset gathering, um, which can also be an issue. Sort of parking that aside for a minute, um, it's very difficult to select funds properly, uh, not just select them, okay? So select and monitor funds. It's, it's an ongoing process. It takes a lot of time. 
I, I don't quite, uh, it, it's very difficult to find the resources to do that. Now, I'm not saying that we can't do it. We have dedicated resources to do that. And that's the point that we do that. Um, and, and we also are very specific in how we do it. We don't choose to um, cover the entire universe, so cover all of the ASISA funds, because that would spread you very thin and you're going to miss out on important ones, I suppose. Uh, so for us, or at least in my personal experience and what I've seen, it's about digging very, very deep into the process and the philosophy, trying to sit with a manager, and, and we're fortunate that we get face-to-face managers, uh, sorry, meetings with the managers, during COVID, that was a little bit different. But, of course, now um, we, we're back to face-to-face meetings. Uh, we do um, calls as well. But you can actually sit there and ask them about specific points in their performance, their time series. You can look at when there's been a sudden uh, dislocation uh, versus the benchmark. So uh, their tracking error, their, their returns versus the benchmark suddenly look very different or atypical. Um, so you can work through things like that. You can also see periods of underperformance and ask them why, why has that happened? So that's where performance is useful, but you need to trend these things over time. You can't just look at a uh, cutoff date and say that's their performance and they've done well. Um, the reason that I say it's very difficult and resource intensive is because once you've finally gotten through all of this, you cut through all the marketing noise, you've identified this, that this manager has a really good process that should pay off over the long run because that's sort of what you should be making your decisions over. Um, once you've identified that, you then actually need to keep monitoring and say, what I bought on day one, is it still the same thing? Has the manager changed, the portfolio manager, or has the investment team changed, or is there some other thing going on in the organization that changes it? Has the operations team fallen away, and now that full burden is sitting on the investment team? Um, you, you need to sort of stay on the ball. And so... Back to that example of why we don't cover the entire CISA category, and, and that's forgetting that we have global investments. Um, why we wouldn't do that is because you need to now manage, sort of monitor all of that and have an opinion on all of that. And I'm not sure how you can do that without having basically an army to, to monitor all of those funds, contact them every so often, understand what's going on, have a personal relationship with them to a certain extent. So not necessarily getting together on weekends, but just that when something does change, they think to let you know about it. Um, I, I think that that's quite an important thing um, when it comes to fund selection. And, and I guess reflecting back to the context of, of this discussion in the podcast, uh, if, if you think about financial advice, and there certainly are all sorts of different types of financial advisors out there, and many, many good ones in different shapes and forms. Um, but for for me, the, the ideal is that you have a financial advisor who really cares and focuses on that relationship with the end investor, spends most of their time on that. And it doesn't mean that they don't need to know what's going on with investments at all. In fact, it's better if they do. But to take your time away from a client and spend it on investments when you could potentially get that in a different way, you at least need to consider it. Uh, you need to consider outsourcing certain parts of the business um, I think even if you reflect back on all the studies that have been done over time and surveys and things, the value of, of advice, so often it comes through that relationship. It's managing the behavior of the end investor, um, putting them into the right portfolio, creating the correct plan and, and all of that, but managing the behavior of the investor as you go through this ride. It's, it's almost like coaching or guiding someone through this process. Um, tour guide, I suppose, through through the capital markets as up and down, but um I think that that's really when advisor offers the most value and quantitatively has been shown to offer the most value. 
But of course, you need to make sure the investment product delivers per the financial plan. Um, I think it is a difficult one for a financial advisor who wants to do everything because there are only so many hours in the day. I look at how busy just the investment side of things keeps me and, and my colleagues um, keeps us very busy uh, a lot of the time. And we're continually looking to improve and to to identify things and monitor, just sort of maintain what we have as well, uh, to say that you can do that and that I'd be able to advise clients on the side. I think I'd, I'd certainly struggle with that. Um, but that's my, my own personal take. Um, I think some other advisors probably do have a good balance. I love that visual of the tour guide of the capital markets. <laughs> Liam, for, for someone listening to this that, might be moving from advice into the investment analyst world or portfolio or want to become a portfolio manager, what would your advice be for younger analysts joining? You know, because from the outside, it looks like almost the the amount of analysts are reducing in South Africa. It's becoming quite difficult. Um, is that the truth or is it just my version of what might be going on? I must be honest and say that I don't know the full breadth of the industry and demand. Um, but a few things that I at least have an opinion on uh, is that uh, you, you mentioned young advisors or, or people involved in the advice side of the part of the industry. I think that's important. You should do it when you're young because you do get typecast quite easily uh, in the industry. I think when you move into an operational type role, hoping that this will be your step into the investment team, I'm not sure how many success stories there have actually been of that. Certainly there have been, but the the number versus uh, the number of people trying to follow that route, I think it's quite difficult. The second thing that I, I put to that is, again, being typecast in the advice part of the market can be quite difficult to move across into the actual investment side, and, and it requires different skill sets. So investments, um, perhaps you can make a distinction this way, and, and it's not – it's not all in good investment analysts are going to be this way. But for me, if you enjoy opening up a blank Excel document with a plan of what you're going to do with it, and that sort of thing gets your heart skipping a beat a little bit, I would personally say that that would suggest that you're going to enjoy being an analyst. I won't say you'll be a good one, but you'll really enjoy being an analyst. If, on the other hand, you'd much rather sit with a client or with a person and engage with them, understand them, talk to them, um, sort of, again, help them navigate this world of uncertainty, then perhaps you you would make a much better advisor. So I know personally, okay, I say I know it, who knows, maybe the future has, a, has an advice role for me, but at this stage, I don't think I would personally be a good financial advisor. And, it, and it's not that I don't connect with people like interpersonally and things, it's that I would much rather open up an Excel document with some noise cancelling headphones on and build out the document that I needed, like Excel document that I needed to be. Uh, I'd much rather do that. So it, it's, I guess, finding passion. It's, it's finding where um, your skill set and your passion are sort of aligns. If you can find that, then I think you're going to be happy. If being an investment analyst is it, then you need to just work hard and push for it. Um, be prepared to make sacrifices. I think that's the biggest one. So my own personal um, sort of journey cut very, very short in, in explanation now, but it was in essence, I, I studied engineering, I went into mining, I enjoyed it. I was doing mining consulting. I was uh, traveling um, sort of globally, so not just in South Africa to Rustenburg and, and, and the likes, but I was traveling and, and enjoying it. It was a very interesting job, but the pace was just too slow. So in mining, they've got the saying, hurry, uh, hurry up uh, and wait. And, and it really is like you've got a rush and then you're going to wait two or three hours for something. Um, so bringing that idea across 
uh, kind of looking at this world of investments where everything's in numbers, it's quantified, it's it's something that you can study, something that you can put into an Excel document. And by the way, the people around you are also going to understand what you're talking about when you're showing them these charts and graphs and things. Um, that was very appealing to me. And so I started studying CFA. Uh, and there are different ways to get into the industry, but CFA is widely recognized for the for the sacrifice that you have to make and the challenge that it actually is. Uh, and that it gives you a good grounding. It gives you a very good foundation to get into the industry. Um, so I would say that personally, that's probably the best part. You need to show the industry that you're prepared to sacrifice and that you really have a passion for it. And you'll sacrifice nights and mornings for a good sort of six or seven months um, to write a single exam that you may or may not pass. Uh, comes down to that, I think. And just keep pushing. I mean, that that's ultimately what it is. Uh, when I was applying to join the industry, uh, one of the big insurers, uh, HR departments responded to me, which by the way, was a step up on some of the other companies I applied to. Um, but they responded to me saying, sorry, we don't employ engineers, uh, despite my cover letter explaining what my actual intentions were. But <laughs> um, yeah, it's it's just an interesting one. You, you just need to keep knocking on doors and keep sort of building, I guess, investing in your human capital. If you can invest in that and the investment analyst role sort of just never comes to fruition, you'll still be better off. Uh, you'll still have a broader perspective, a better inspector a perspective, uh, maybe even overqualified for a certain job that you have, but uh, it never hurts to to have knowledge, to have understanding and, and sort of a thirst and interest for it as well. It makes so much sense, just backing your passion. Um, but it's quite difficult when, you know, you might be leaving school and you have to decide what's the study path to get where you ultimately want to be without knowing what that looks like. And it's wonderful yeah. to hear how you enjoy, you know, building out the models, uh, looking at the analytical side, but also then the team interaction, the interaction with the fund managers. Part of that, you mentioned the speed, you know, the speed of um, seeing what's happening in the market. And last week, it dawned on me that, you know, with a lot of digital assets, those markets never sleep. You don't get a time to, there's no market close. Um, the pricing continues consistently. Do we need to spend a bit of time understanding those assets? Um, and, I, and I take that this would be your personal view, not necessarily portfolio metrics view, but I'm curious where this fits in. We're seeing a lot of US thought leaders that speak to financial advisors say, you have to spend time understanding blockchain, understanding uh, NFTs and these future asset classes. But I'm not 100% convinced. Uh, so I'm curious what uh, what Liam's take is on all of this. I don't know how much diversity we'll have in this this discussion because I'm also not necessarily 100% convinced. Um, if, if we just for a second jump back to your very first question where you're essentially talking about news headlines and what it means, I think the loudest voice in the room is not always necessarily the clearest or the, the most thoughtful. Um, and, and so I'm not, I'm not saying that that these voices, particularly coming out of sort of global markets or, or the US, just because of how deep those capital markets are, how well they're covered. I'm not saying that they're wrong. I'm not saying that digital assets won't be there. And I, I think you'll certainly do yourself a favor to understand a little bit of it, um, even if it's just the blockchain. It's not understanding, it's not going and studying how many different uh, cryptocurrencies there are and the different the differences between like a, a Bitcoin or Ethereum and a stable coin and stuff like that. You, you don't need to know that unless you want to know that. I, why I said I don't think there'll be that much diversity in, in opinion here is because I kind of feel the same. Um, I, 
I've tried to find more information about why it would make sense to have it and own it and why it would make sense to own it now. And personally, I don't have any, or at least not any direct exposure. Maybe that I have this tiny look through in my portfolio, which eventually bought Tesla, which bought some Bitcoin um, kind of thing. But I've not personally gone out to buy uh, digital currencies or, or cryptocurrencies or anything like that. Um, there, there are lots of ways to look at it. I think at this point, you could probably price it with almost like a fair value based on, on its adoption, plus like a layer of speculative, almost like a premium on top of it. And, and that's a lot of utility. I mean, a lot of people have been able to borrow at very cheap rates or receive a stimulus check, go and buy some digital currency and look how well it's performed. And therefore, you absolutely should have some. But we all know that those prices have come down. So that's the reality of a volatile asset class. If an asset class is volatile and you can predict some sort of form of long-term return out of it or utility out of it, then I think that's a different story. So it's, what I'm getting at there is that it's very difficult to say I'm being rewarded for the volatility in the asset class because that speculation is um, sentiment. It's, it's behavioral uh, aspects in the market, which to a certain extent you can harvest out of predictable asset classes. But you can't do so easily, do that so easily through through different cryptocurrencies. They just are very volatile. Their characteristics change. You can't say that they've got a stable or um, reliable correlation versus other asset classes. Um, and it's difficult to price them on any fundamental basis. So for me, it's very difficult to say that I should have even any proportion of my uh, personal assets in that. And then I was reading a, a piece uh, not so long ago, I think it was probably about a week or so ago, by research affiliates talking about digital um, currencies um, and cryptocurrencies and the like. And, and there was a good point in there that I actually hadn't thought about before. And they said uh, a lot of the case behind these cryptocurrencies is that they're going to disrupt and that they're going to become the main form of transactions or at least a considerable form of transactions. Uh, and the point that they're making, it right, rightly or wrongly, but it resonated with me, was that if it does get adopted as a as a sort of wide, widely accepted currency, whichever one, Bitcoin, Ethereum, whichever, uh, if it is adopted in that sense, um, the idea is that your transaction fees should come down a huge amount, right? So it should be cheaper on that basis to be buying the currency in the future rather than now. Um, your speculative uh, premium that I was speaking about earlier should shrink and should actually probably bring the price down. And so again, you should be converting from rands or dollars into these cryptocurrencies at a more favorable exchange rate in the future. Um, and, and it just, in essence, meant that you don't need to buy it now, even if you believe that it's going to um, take over the world, I suppose. You, you don't need to. You, and, and I mean, the few cents that I have is not going to suddenly uh, sway the market enough that they're going to believe that this is the way forward and I'm lucky I got in um, ahead of everyone. And, and that was the other thought that I had about it. It's not like a stock that you're trying to buy as a penny stock because you know it's going to be the future. Um, and you have to buy it now because the price is only going to appreciate. If the price isn't going to appreciate into the future, the utility might. But if the price itself isn't going to appreciate... You don't have to buy it now. You can wait for the rest of the world to decide that this is what we want to do, and then you can buy it. Um, there's no reason why you can't at, at that point. So for me, it's there's no fear of missing out. You don't you don't need to fear that because um, it'll be there. I mean, especially if it's broadly accepted, it'll be there, and you can buy it then. That's kind of my take on it. Um, I mean, even if you look at the main proponents of it, you have like El Salvador accepting uh, sort of like 
moving across to that. Um, Tesla at one point had bought a whole lot and said, we'll sell cars through Bitcoin. And and yeah, I, I don't know. It's just a tricky one. You, you don't have to be first. And maybe I, I can I can reflect again on some of my experience in the mining industry where everybody wants to be first to be second. Um, you, you, you don't need to be the first, first person to, to get in on that. Um, yeah, that's my personal opinion. But Again, it comes back to utility. So do I feel better having 1% of my portfolio in Bitcoin? Personally, no, but maybe other people do. So maybe they want it, and then that's great. Um, but at least try and frame that discussion or sort of do like a simple pros and cons list, considering like, should I buy it now or later? What's the difference between buying now or later? Um, do I want to participate in, in this? Which is, ironically, your traditional asset classes, everyone says it, Geez, valuations look expensive. I don't want to buy it now because it could crash, it could halve in price. But go and look at the volatility, that type of roller coaster ride that you've had in Bitcoin or digital uh, currencies. Yeah, it's it's a tricky one. In in a much broader context, digital assets, uh, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't say I'd want to personally own an NFT, especially when they start burning them. I, I don't know if you've seen any of that, but basically, yeah. Anyway, uh, I, I don't. I don't personally see utility in owning owning an NFT, but if you look at um, if you look at like blockchain and things like that, there, there is, I suppose, potential for innovation, uh, broad spread disruption possible. Maybe it makes transfer of properties, ownership and transfer of properties easier because that in itself is already a very very slow process. So it's not like you need to you can just speed it up a little bit. But if there's trust in in that system. That could very well uh, be, be a good application. But personally, I mean, again, it's not something that you need to get ahead of. Maybe if you're a venture capitalist looking for for sort of a new company or startup that you're looking to set up and this is the channel that you're going into, then that's great. But as an individual investor, I can wait until it's listed and buy it at that point if I really want. Um, I can, in the meantime, earn fairly healthy returns out of more traditional asset classes. Uh, that's That's my personal view. Liam, you kept on mentioning that, you know, you were operating in uncertainty and it's so wonderful to hear how you tackle building this framework in something that there isn't a known outcome. And I think that gives us an insight in terms of the value that analysts and DFMs and the work that you do at Portfolio Metrics um, brings to the table, you know, because it takes a certain person to do that with a certain amount of passion. And it's been wonderful having you here today. As we come to the close of this, um, would people be able to reach out to you and make connections? And if so, what would be the best route for them to do so? Yeah, of course. Um, look, I, I think we've got a number of contact points. So firstly, the website, but I wouldn't say go that way. It's, it's a nice website and we put effort into it, but it's always nice to speak to a person. So on our website, we'll have contact details. I think perhaps we could put a, a link into, into this podcast as well. And um, we've got a, a very, very, very friendly and kind business development team um, who would be quite keen to to chat to you. And if you specifically want to speak to me, that's great. I'm on LinkedIn as well. Uh, if you specifically don't want to speak to me, that's also great. And and we've got lots of other people around here that <laughs> that'll be quite happy to to feel the call or uh, an email. We we are responsive. I think you you need to be as a business just in general. Um, but we are very responsive and, and open to any type of engagement. Thank you very much for your time today and good luck with building your models and spending time in Excel. And thank you for, for building client portfolios so that we don't have to spend too much time there. Um, yeah, I really enjoyed it. Great. Thanks so much, Louis. I appreciate it. Too.